The world is changing. The world has changed, maybe more than we pay attention to day to day. China has come up like crazy with its economy, and power flows from that. We don't have to think about a new Cold War, but let's get real about what's going on with global power, the real place of the United States, the real place of the West, what this century is going to look like in terms of East, West, freedom, state control. These are active issues that are unfolding right now. The whole world is watching. If you're paying attention, you see enormous changes unfolding around us. John Soares, Sir John Soares, was head of MI6, the British intelligence service. They look at overseas intelligence for the UK. It's the outfit made famous by the James Bond movies, the outfit with Judi Dench playing the role of the top, hmm, what, spy chief there. That's the role Sir John Soares played. We sat down with him to talk about how power is changing in the world. Sir John, uh, thanks a lot for sitting down with us. Thank you. Thanks for being here, Tom. It's great to have you. We're sitting in the United States, the United States of America, for a long time, the big power. As we sit here today, and by the way, you don't look at all like Judy Dench. <laughs> well, okay, we, we didn't assume you would. Is the U.S. still the global locus of power? Where is power now? Where is it moving? Where does that take us? I think when you look back over the last uh, 70 years or so, uh, through the Cold War, the aftermath of the Cold War, there's no doubt where the single most important power in the world was and where the biggest decisions in the world were taken. It was in the United States, in Washington, D.C. Uh, and that's because the United States had a dominant position in the global economy. It had shaped the global institutions um, and it was the most powerful uh, military force in the world, balanced to some extent by the Soviet Union. But as the Cold War went on, uh, U.S. primacy became clearer and clearer. Change now is that uh, there is no longer that US sole primacy. We're now living in a world where China and the United States are almost co-equal in terms of at least economic power in the world. The Chinese economy in purchasing power terms is larger than the US economy. <clears throat> and that um, uh, uh, the Chinese growth will outstrip US growth for the foreseeable future. And so that uh, uh, greater strength of the Chinese economy will only, uh, will only widen vis-a-vis uh, -vis, uh, uh, Americas. So co-equals already. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, when, when you look at um, the uh, capacity to uh, invest in new industries, in new technology, uh, uh, the work that the Chinese are doing on uh, quantum computing and artificial intelligence, this is just as impressive as what is going on in the United States. I've heard you say recently, note that, you talk about 70 years, but it was really 200 years that it was either the U.S. or the U.K. who were the preponderant world power. Well, that's, that's correct. Britain in the 19th century, since uh, uh, 100 years ago, United States, since the end of the First World War, have been the dominant um, uh, global powers. And of course, although there was some friction uh, between Britain and America in the 19th and earlier 20th yes. centuries, basically it was a transition between like-minded nations, uh, like-minded powers. We had similar values, similar approach to the rule of law, similar attitudes towards uh, a free market global economy and to democracy. Um, <clears throat> the, uh, I don't see a transition taking place at the moment uh, from America to China. If it's not a transition, then what do you have? What it is, is a transition from a one-power world to a two-power world. Uh, and that's what the United States has not yet fully absorbed uh, is that the single dominant role of the United States is going to have to accommodate a power of equal weight uh, emerging 
over the next 20 years. I say emerging, in economic terms, it's as powerful now. Mm -hmm. Of course, the United States benefits from decades of building up military uh, capability, mm -hmm. bases around the world, alliances, and so on. And China's a long way behind the United States on that. On the military front, on, on the, the On the military and strategic front. Mm -hmm. um, but China will gradually expand out its, uh, its uh, influence, as, as we're seeing uh, in Southeast Asia, for example. Mm -hmm. um, and I think the Belt and Road Initiative is a Chinese uh, ambition, uh, not just to develop economic and trade links into the rest of Asia, the Middle East, and, and ultimately Europe, uh, but to lay the, the groundwork for a strategic role of being the dominant power in Eurasia by the end of this century. The Belt and Road, this is all the infrastructure that they're pouring into that great landmass and sea routes and ports exactly to that. knit all of that realm together. Mm. When you're in the States and you're talking with Americans, are they aware of the way the world has changed around them. Are Americans you know, walking along with a kind of delusion at this point of you know, preponderant global sway? No, I, 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 I think um, Americans in senior positions are very, very aware of China's power uh, and the, the difference between uh, the Chinese system and the American system. We, <clears throat> we comforted ourselves uh, for... Uh, a couple of decades mm -hmm. after the end of the Cold War with the sort of Francis Fukuyama thesis that somehow... History's over, we won, that's it. Yeah, uh, that it was the end of history. That, mm -hmm. And the end of history wasn't that nothing else would happen, but that there was only one global model that, mm -hmm. that would work. And inexorably, the rest of the world would gravitate towards liberal democracy and, and uh, free market uh, uh, economics. It was an incredibly powerful theme for years after the Berlin Wall it, came it, down. It was. Um, but what we've seen, in, especially since the financial crash of 10 years ago, uh, is that um, the Chinese model has attractions for, um, uh, uh, for uh, many other nations. Uh, and it's very different from the American model. It's uh, uh, centered on limited political freedoms, mm -hmm. uh, uh, concerted uh, investment in strategic industries, and it's about harnessing state power and using it for wider state benefits in, against a background of domestic stability and control. Um, Why is that appealing? I mean, the, the idea was, and Americans and I think Europeans often mm -hmm. like to presume that the, the free market capital Western way was the way that worked and everyone else would fall in line because the Western way worked. But, and also we saw with the Asian tigers, um, with Korea, Singapore, uh, Taiwan, Singapore, Singapore, Taiwan mm -hmm. etc. that as, and, and South Korea, mm -hmm. as countries became more affluent and their economies grew, there was then a demand for more liberal politics and more open politics. Mm -hmm. It seemed to affirm the thesis that exactly. this would be the way. Exactly. Um, and they were, I think that was part of what Frank Fukuyama was thinking about when, when he was uh, uh, writing at the end of the Cold War. The, uh, but the situation in China now provides an alternative model of powerful central leadership, stability at home, uh, the capacity to harness the new technologies, um, and it's particularly attractive to regime leaders because you have continuity at the top. And Xi Jinping course, now saying he can be leader for life. Well, there you go. That's one, that's one, that's mm -hmm. one example of it. Um, and the other thing is it, it, uh, it delivers the goods for ordinary people. And I remember going to China recently 
and talking to people there, and they were fascinated by Western democracy. They followed the ups and downs of um, events in Europe and in America. Mm-hmm. Um, they said, it's not for us. Actually, for us, stability is more important than personal freedom. And it's a model of the success of the state rather than the freedom of the individual which is appealing to some other uh, developing and middle-income countries. Absolutely. But the West thought that it, it had it all. It had the freedoms and it had the prosperity. They were the dominant economies. The middle class did incredibly well across much of the Western world from much of the 20th century. What happened to that model? Well, I think part of the problem is that uh, in the embrace of globalization, uh, of which America and Britain were the countries. Right out front. At the, at the forefront of, of that uh, revolution. Uh, the benefits for our economies were quite substantial at the macro level, but the, the, uh, at the individual level, the, uh, uh, the successes of, uh, uh, of a globalized economy were very unevenly distributed. Mm. Um, and the Inequality exploded. The statistic that sticks very much in my mind is that the full-time the median wage for a full-time American male worker mm-hmm. in 1973 was higher than it is today. Uh, and that's despite the U.S. economy wow. growing several fold yes. uh, in the interim. And all that so, growth went somewhere, but not to the ordinary man or woman. It didn't go woman. to the man in the middle. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, obviously, there have been benefits in terms of women coming into the marketplace, mm-hmm. uh, a labor market, which is, which is hugely valuable uh, you've, uh, in economic terms uh, as well as socially. And you see the, um, uh, uh, the, the growth of, an, uh, uh, of uh, new technologies. But the, the, the benefits of the economy have largely gone to the successful people within the economy. Um, and the security of people in the bottom half of the economy has changed dramatically. Um, uh, the uh, uh, most people have got jobs. Unemployment is low in Britain and America, mm. but the quality of those jobs has declined. Instead of having sort of forty dollar an hour uh, skilled jobs in manufacturing industry, yeah. people have got fifteen dollar an hour jobs in the gig economy. You you were head of MI six. You were right up in the top levels mm. of the UK government. Mm. Where are the Western leaders who are supposed to be thinking about this? Well, in China, we know they're hypersensitive yeah. to the well being of the mass of people. The uh, you know, they, they never want to lose that sense that it's working for everybody. It doesn't always, mm. but they're very sensitive to it. They don't want people out in the streets. They don't want revolution. Mm. Where are the Western leaders who should be thinking about this, the elites mm. who did so well in yeah. the time of globalization? Well, well, first of all, just on China, I think they do have local uh, up, uh, upheavals oh, and, yeah. uh, and uh, there's lots and of demonstrations take place uh, mm-hmm. uh, around China and they're very anxious to um, to maintain uh, control and to meet the needs of ordinary people mm-hmm. uh, uh, and that in some sense is, is, is one of the vulnerabilities in the Chinese system. I'm certainly not sitting yes. here uh, saying you know, the Chinese system is going to be victorious over the Western system. I don't see that as the outcome. What I do see as the outcome is two rather different systems, um, not as in the Cold War when they're hostile to one another, but they are different and will attract support from other countries in different ways. Mm -hmm. And the Chinese model is economically going to be much more successful and has been much more successful than the Soviet model of state socialism. Now, you Mm -hmm. say who in the West is is understanding these questions. I think... um, uh, both in America and Britain in the last couple of years, we've seen a backlash against uh, 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 the, um, uh, 
the elites of the establishment. A populist backlash. You get Donald Trump, you get Brexit. Exactly. uh, Trump and Brexit were the two Mm -hmm. um, most obvious examples Mm. uh, of that. And I don't think we should sit here and and, uh, uh, gnash our teeth at the uh, failings of ordinary people to understand the realities of the world. I think people voted for Brexit and they voted for Trump because it was in their interest to do so. I think these are consequences of economic and social changes in our in our country because the perceived globalization was not working for them. Well, it, well, it was not working for them, mm-hmm. as we as mm-hmm. we see in mm-hmm. the returns to uh, to the median yeah. uh, the median worker mm-hmm. in in our societies. Mm-hmm. So uh, I, I think it's it is very interesting how um, different countries are responding to uh, the populist rise. Um, the uh, the best example in Europe is probably President Macron in mm-hmm. France, mm-hmm. Um, who has recognized the um, the staleness of the old political system mm-hmm. on both left and right, mm-hmm. uh, who launched a new party and a new campaign. Nobody expected him. Out even of nowhere, two, in a way. Even two or three months before the election, yep. no one expected him to become president and his party to become the uh, the leading force in the, um, in the National Assembly mm-hmm. in, in France. He was helped, of course, by the French electoral system. Uh, with a... Uh, Not a two-party system. It's a four-party system. Yes. It's a four-party system because it's got a two-stage electoral process. Mm-hmm. In Europe, in Britain and America, we have a first-past-the-post, one-stage uh, electoral, proce- uh, electoral process, and that forces you into a two-party system. Yeah. And when you have a two-party system, that means there's a huge barrier to entry for any new party. Mm-hmm. So populist forces emerge through the existing parties. Mm -hmm. We've seen that in my country, in Mm -hmm. the Labour Party, Mm -hmm. and in the policies of the Conservative Party. Mm -hmm. Uh, We've seen it in the United States through the Bernie Sanders phenomenon and the Trump phenomenon Mm -hmm. in the the Democratic and Republican parties. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Um, In France, in Netherlands, in Germany, in Italy, new parties were formed, but the centre was able to hold. And I think what we have to face in Britain, and, and to some extent you have to face in America, is the centre has not held, and there's a political vacuum at the centre, uh, which uh, we don't quite know how to fill, how, how to fill, and how to recognise the aspirations of many um, ordinary citizens who don't feel that the current choices in politics represent uh, what they want and what they're looking for. Uh, but our two-party system, our first-past-the-post system, yep. which we've prided ourselves on mm. uh, for a hundred years of yes. delivering strong government, clear outcomes, and it has done that. But it's finding it difficult to react to the new pressures given, uh, driven by the impact of technology, the impact of globalization, and the, the wider inequalities in our societies. Performance was our proof point. What I should, our, was the West's proof point. Mm. Uh, we could say, look at our standard of living, mm. look at the freedoms we enjoy, look at the relative uh, satisfaction yeah. of our populace. Um, what about performance now? When you compare, you know, right economic, technological, is the are the Western values still propelling superior performance? Well, I, I, there are huge strengths in the Western system, and the last thing we should do is despair about our own system. I think there's a resilience in our societies. There's checks and balances, which we're seeing in the United States now through the courts, through the media. Mm-hmm. Um, so that moderates excessive decisions by uh, by executive powers. The founding fathers were very skillful in devising a system to uh, prevent um, a single individual gaining disproportionate power yeah. at the center of the United States. Well, we see it can be tested, but performance is yeah. across a wide spectrum of outcomes. Exactly. Right? But, uh, and also, 
our systems have been very successful in developing, promoting new technologies, bringing them to market. Uh, uh, we've all our lives have been transformed by uh, iPhones and retail um, uh, online retail uh, actions, by Facebook, how we communicate with each other, and so on. We've been. In the West, we're still in the lead in driving those sorts of changes. A firm lead? Because I look around the world now, and I, yes, we've been amazing on this front. Mm -hmm. But China's putting huge resources into AI. China's got all kinds of developments in the internet world. Look at Tencent, Alibaba, all the rest. Uh, what about that lead? Well, Tom, you're making exactly my point, mm -hmm. is that the Chinese model is now not dependent upon stealing technological developments from the West, uh, short-circuiting their, their R&D uh, uh, development programs. The, uh, the, the Chinese system is proving almost as productive as the Western system in developing new technologies. Uh, and uh, 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 that is something which we, we have to acknowledge and, and recognize and come to terms with, that it's not as if we have a superior model that will forever keep us in the lead. I think the way the Chinese see it is that, that we thought that at one point pretty recently. We did. We did it was that. us versus socialism. Socialism led to moribund economies, yeah. so we had and, it. And socialism has failed. Uh, the, mm. the, the sort of Soviet-style, yeah. centrally commanded economies, yeah. uh, it's been a, it's, it's a historical lesson of the 20th century, is that fails. Mm. Uh, and it's the Western system has triumphed. Now, this Chinese system, uh, they call it socialism with Chinese characteristics. Yeah, uh, it looks thing. to me very much like a, a, uh, a centrally directed market economy. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, Seems an oxymoron in old Western it, it does for us, market exactly. capitalism terms. But, but when you look at the Chinese economy since 1979, they've been growing at between 7 and 10% a year consistently for, what is it, almost 40 years. Donald uh, Trump says that's just because they were ripping, us off, ripping off the, the, the U.S. economy. Well, uh, it's a one-time event where they could move in with all that manufacturing, sell it to the rich United States and the rest of the world, and boom, up goes that economy. I think that's a, that's a comforting notion. Um, yeah. And there was no doubt that China did benefit from an export-led uh, economy, which fed into Western markets, producing good quality goods yeah. at, uh, at, at low prices, mm -hmm. uh, at better and better prices. Um, <clears throat> but uh, the Chinese economy is adjusting. Uh, they are moving more to a more consumer-driven uh, uh, mm -hmm. approach inside China. Uh, and they now have, you mentioned some of them, uh, uh, some of the biggest companies in the world, uh, Ambang and Tencent and so on. Mm -hmm. um, and they've got you know, the four biggest banks in the world are Chinese banks. Mm -hmm. uh, they, are play they are moving into a role uh, where they're playing a very influential and um, uh, uh, to some extent responsible approach. Now, a lot of Chinese activities over the last 30 years have been irresponsible. They have stolen Western technology, mm -hmm. and they've developed the, uh, some of their companies on the backs of uh, cyber theft. Um, but of course, there was a time when Americans went to the uh, to, to Britain and uh, sketched out your textile industry and brought it back here. <laughs> well, we, we, we've 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 all had to play catch up at some yes, time, yes. Uh, sometime in our in, in our history. Um, now, I don't exonerate the Chinese from this, and I think mm -hmm. uh, the, uh, the the Trump administration have rightly identified practices where the Chinese have um, have got very close to the wind, uh, very close to the limits of what's acceptable in terms of their trade uh, activities. Into espionage, full of industrial at the very least. Exactly. Um, equally, though, we have to preserve the global trading system. We mm -hmm. need to be careful uh, to... Uh, 
uh, and wary of the risks of a U.S.-China tra trade war, uh, which, is, which we could be moving towards if um, uh, really punitive measures are taken against China uh, in the context of, of past historic uh, grievances. Say we're moving in then to a, an era of two systems, the sort of Chinese model and mm -hmm. If we can describe a Western model, I don't know if that will be one model or if Europe and the U.S. may have different models. Mm. I'm not sure about that. But how do you have it, at least two systems and not have it take on Cold War characteristics? How does that not turn into a struggle for dominance? Well, Tom, that's the question of the 21st century. Um, uh, that uh, Here we are sitting in the Kennedy School, Graham Allison, one of the, the uh, most thoughtful uh, intellectual mm -hmm. leaders um, uh, in America has recently written a book entitled Destined for War mm -hmm. where he identifies the very real risk of China and the United States competing in a way which leads the two powers into conflict. Now you'll have to talk to Graham to mm -hmm. expand sure. on, on that thesis um, but he uh, he talks about the Thucydides trap going mm -hmm. back to the uh, conflict between Greeks. Sparta and Athens mm -hmm. in, in ancient Greece and he identifies 16 rivalries and tensions where a rising power has threatened a, a leading power. Mm -hmm. And you were asking me earlier about the transition from British dominance to American dominance. That was handled relatively smoothly, in part because of you know, wise leadership uh, uh, on both sides and a commonality in approach. Um, but many other examples... Oh, there were tensions even there. The Suez crisis, the U.S. kind of gave the U.K. a uh, And the, the crisis under, under Teddy Roosevelt uh, uh, over 100 years ago mm -hmm. as well. The, um, uh, but it didn't lead to war. Mm -hmm. a, a few skirmishes, but not yep. war. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, when you look at Britain and Germany uh, 100 years ago, mm -hmm. the events leading up to the First World War, mm -hmm. um, that was a rivalry which got out of control and then one spark, the assassination of the um, uh, of the uh, 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 the uh, Austrian crown prince in um, in in Sarajevo, led to a conflagration which destroyed Europe. Mm -hmm. um, now, it's that risk of building up uh, uh, tensions, of uh, threatening postures, where one spark can create a conflict, which I think Graham Allison was pointing to. Uh, in the in, in in a situation where China and the United States are now going to be co-equals on the global stage, and here we are already sitting with the South China Sea developments, with the Taiwan Straits, with North Korea. Yeah. It's it, quite it, an array. I don't think it's realistic for the United States to envisage that in thirty years' time, say in twenty fifty, mm -hmm. that the United States will be the dominant power in Asia. Uh, that soon? Uh, uh, well, thirty years is quite a long time. Uh, I, I think the wise approach for the United States and for China is to look for a way to cooperate and to manage uh, these issues uh, and to each to focus on what is really important, what is essential for them. Um, Are they compatible? Can the two systems share the world without uh, rivalry that comes right up to the line of conflict? Well, um, uh, you certainly shouldn't rule that out. If you do rule it out, you're condemning yourself to uh, to, yes, to of conflict course. No, and confrontation. We, we, it has to be cultivated. Um, and, and you've got wise leaders. I mean, Henry Kissinger is the classic example of someone who's worked with China mm -hmm. for 50 years now mm -hmm. um, and who can talk in terms of developments over the period of a decade or, or decades um, and look at ways whereby the, uh, the, uh, the tensions 
and the, uh, the issues that might emerge can be managed in the framework of a strategic relationship. Mm -hmm. Now, to some extent, the United States has done quite well on that in the economic and financial uh, arena, where uh, the, uh, the dialogue uh, between uh, the Bush administration in Beijing, with the Obama administration in Beijing, got into a lot of detail about how China's growing role in the global economy mm -hmm. should be absorbed. There's still big mistakes made there. For example... Um, Trump calls it all a sellout in the end. Well, I wouldn't, I'm not trying to make party political points. Yeah, but, well, I don't but, mean party. But even under Obama, mm -hmm. um, the, uh, uh, the international community at the IMF and the World Bank agreed to a greater role, for example, for China in those uh, Washington institutions. Mm -hmm. But the changes were blocked in Congress. Mm -hmm. And so China went off and built its own institution, yes. the uh, Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, yes. uh, which the United States first tried to resist and in the end had to come to terms with. Mm -hmm. So unless the West adapts the global institutions to take account of Chinese power, well, China is going to be um, motivated to go off and invent its own institutions, which will be rivals to the West. But we've got the capacity to include China in the design that was put together after the Second World War of, um, uh, uh, of an international system that works fundamentally around Western rules and Western values. Is that capacity we, still there as we sit here in 2018? Well, I, I think it or is. Or have we already I, moved beyond that? Uh, Those institutions are looking pretty creaky. Well, some of them are looking a bit creaky, I agree, but uh, they also do some very good work around yes. the world. People look at the United Nations, and uh, I used to be the British ambassador in, in, in New York, uh, mm -hmm. sitting on the Security Council. Mm -hmm. The Security Council does get blocked uh, on difficult issues like mm -hmm. Syria or Ukraine. But equally, the UN system does fantastically good work on development, on health, on, on uh, 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 managing the internet, and, and these sorts of things uh, around, the, around the, um, uh, uh, you know, the global system, what's important to ordinary people. Yeah. Um, uh, development and uh, 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 addressing climate change and, and so on. So we, we shouldn't declare our international institutions uh, broken and unfit for purpose mm -hmm. when they are actually still doing a lot of work and it's only a few aspects of them that, uh, uh, that are in difficulty. Do you think China's interested still in coming in and maybe reinvigorating those with its full participation? Or does it want to make its own Belt and Road century? Look, China is... Um, uh, a, a very active and responsible participant in the in the Security Council. Mm -hmm. You look at the successive measures that were taken against Iran um, in the mm -hmm. uh, in the uh, period from 2007 to 2015. Mm -hmm. You look at the measures taken against North Korea. Now, the the Chinese are responsible players in the Security Council. Um, uh, uh, that doesn't mean you can always get agreement uh, with them. Uh, sometimes the gap is just uh, is just too wide. But one thing about one feature of the China. Chinese economy and the Chinese system is that they do put a very high premium on stability. It was interesting during the Arab Spring, for example, in mm -hmm. 2011, when, frankly, uh, the Obama administration, David Cameron's government in London, were a bit uh, uh, naive when they embraced the demonstrations in Tahrir Square in Cairo, for example. It was hard not to. This place. was the smell of freedom. But uh, it, you're right. And there were you know, half a million people in the main yeah. square in Cairo uh, tweeting and, uh, and communicating on Facebook and organizing themselves. But you know, anyone who understood Cairo, understood Egypt, would have, under, uh, uh, would have known that there are two main forces in Egyptian society, the deep state represented by the army yes. and the Muslim Brotherhood, yes. uh, and that they would be the forces that would ultimately uh, battle things out. The Chinese seem to understand that better than 
Western countries understood it. But the and even if are, they didn't, mm, mm. the Chinese put a premium on yes, stability and exactly. continuity, whereas we thought change would work in our interests. And as we've seen um, around the Arab world, the Arab Spring has mainly led to, uh, to devastation in countries like Syria and Libya and, and Yemen. And uh, Egypt went through three or four years of, uh, of, of disorder and is now back into a, a, a more controlled system than, than existed under President Mubarak. The great American word for decades was freedom. This was <clears throat> the ideal that was championed and trumpeted everywhere. And, mm. and of course, that, it's that legacy that of course, led Obama ultimately mm. to, to come in and support her. How could you not? How could, how could one not if freedom was your, was your uh, uh, standard? Well, freedom depends on stability. Uh, that if you live... It sounds a, a little bit Orwellian. Though, in, what, when what, stability in Beijing terms can mean powerful, central state control. Look, our society is based on the rule of law. Yes. If, and that means that you and I can walk out of this building here yes. in, uh, in Boston. We can walk down the street. If someone tries to assault us, mm -hmm. uh, then there's a, uh, there's a system of law and order that can deal with that. Mm -hmm. If you go out and, and you have a, a, an unstable society, there's no system of law and order. There are no forces to, to, to provide for security. Then your freedom counts for very little. Yes. And that, of course, is the, has been the experience of the great majority of people in the world yes. for most of the last, most of mankind's existence. Yes, indeed. Um, and the great triumph of uh, Western civilization in Europe and in America has been the triumph ultimately of freedom. But it's been, de it's been dependent upon security. There are no freedoms um, uh, uh, in the immediate aftermath of. Uh, uh, of um, conflict and devastation in, mm -hmm. in Europe in 1945, for mm -hmm. example, that had to be, that had to be painfully uh, rebuilt. Marshaled. Mm -hmm. and you, you can talk about freedom of expression in Syria at the moment, but it's completely meaningless to talk about freedom of expression when people have been brutally murdered and bombs and chemical weapons and so mm -hmm. on are being used against them. So, uh, and, and it's not just in, 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 uh, in, in terms of managing uh, tensions in society, it's all about economic development. Very striking that in the development world, uh, there's been a recognition over the last 20 years that without basic security and stability, development can't take off. So the development agencies have realized that building up responsible armed forces, building up the rule of mm -hmm. law, providing for security, mm -hmm. dealing with terrorism mm -hmm. um, and other sources of instability are the precursors of being able to provide for Economic growth, which in itself is the basis for providing a free society. So if you, if you put freedom first uh, and ignore the requirements of both economic development and, um, and basic uh, state stability and security, yes. you end up having none of the above. It can sound like an advertisement for the Chinese way. Put security first. Put stability first. That means government. That means state power first. It's an, it's an advertisement for the Western way because we have provided a basis of the rule of law. Mm -hmm. uh, we've provided for basic stable societies where uh, goods are developed like education and health are, develop, uh, are delivered to ordinary citizens. And we've enjoyed freedom as a, as a, as a consequence of having a basic stable society. Are those things still being proven out? What's, what's the job of the West now in terms of shoring up so that, I mean, you, you see in the UK, in the US, plenty of doubts in the domestic population mm. about exactly those benefits of their society. Well, Tom, I'm not, I, I'm not depressed about this. I'm not um, uh, negative about it. I think we have the capacity in our societies because of the resilience and the checks and balances that we have to uh, address these challenges. Uh, it feels as a Britain 
going through the Brexit process, yes. which I think is unwise for my country to do uh, to, to be doing this. But um, uh, I think we'll recover at some point. Uh, we'll regain our balance because our system is strong enough to, to achieve that. Mm. And the U.S.? Well, it's up for Americans to address this question. You don't need advice from me on it. Um, But I think that uh, the election of President Trump uh, was a consequence of changes that have been taking place in American society for the previous 30 or 40 years. Mm. Of course, it's hard for Europeans to understand the debate in this country on gun control and things like that. Um, But... uh, 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 Americans have to find a way to address these issues. You've got your own balance between um, uh, freedom and uh, and uh, 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 the rule of law and the role of state institutions and government institutions. Um, I'm absolutely confident America will find its way through this. My bigger worry about America is that it may wake late to the realization that it has to share its role in the world with China and that it cannot do down China for the whole of the 21st century and remain top dog when the economic um, drivers are moving in a different direction. And if it awakens late to that reality? Well, then it makes conflict between the US and China more likely. John Sars, uh, MI6, give us a little uh, spycraft here. Uh, J- Judy Dench sits there and talks directly to James Bond. Did you did you ever deal directly with agents once you're at the top of that, or is that total Hollywood? Well, uh, James Bond, of course, was um, uh, was a, an officer of MI6. He yes. was um, he he, um, uh, he was a Brit deployed into the field, and I talked to people like that all the time. Directly yeah, when you sat in the top chair, then. absolutely. And uh, we'd have heads of station around the world in difficult uh, uh, places. We'd have individuals who were operating in. Uh, stressful uh, stressful locations and actually direct communications either uh, on a secure phone or by uh, uh, by encrypted um, uh, communication was a very good way uh, to to maintain uh, for me to understand exactly what was happening in the field and for them to feel that what they were doing was being really valued at the top of the organization so uh, so yes now uh, obviously the James Bond character is is fiction. It's delightful fiction. Yes. Um, and uh, uh, I think in Britain, it's helped uh, retain the very high standing of the intelligence agencies in in, uh, in British society. Um, it's a great recruitment tool as well. Yeah, uh, <laughs> bring it on. Uh, but the, the essence of work in intelligence these days is, first of all, teamwork. Uh, so an individual, a maverick individual like mm-hmm. James Bond doesn't uh, feature in the modern MI6. Um, and also data, uh, data analytics, uh, technology plays a, a very important part of it. Now, technology has always been a part. Mm. Q is a real-life person. Yes. Uh, uh, Q looked after all the gadgets and the stores that mm-hmm. an intelligence uh, uh, agency mm-hmm. uh, requires. Um, but uh, uh, I think the intelligence world is having to change and react to new technology uh, as well. But the essence of providing the best quality of intelligence so that our political leaders can take decisions on the firmest of foundations and with as many facts as they can, they, uh, you can provide them with, I think it's still a very important role. Uh, and if leaders listen or don't listen, the difference that it makes, uh, Donald Trump has been at loggerheads with his own intelligence agencies. Well, that's not unique. We had a situation in Britain uh, uh, about 50 years ago, <coughs> where MI5 convinced themselves, that's our domestic security agency, yes. convinced themselves that the prime minister was working on behalf of uh, of the Russians. Uh, that creates quite a lot of tensions, mm, too. Sounds familiar. Uh, exactly. <laughs> John Soros, former head of MI6 in the UK. Fantastic talking with you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Tom. Thank you to your listeners.